0: Righto, welcome to Crisis Talks, and I'm speaking with Dan Cooney. Dan, an old friend of mine from back in the Defence Force Academy days, uh, is now killing it in business, both uh, here and overseas. Dan, great to have you on board, mate. Hey Grant. How are you going? Really good to be here. Mate, um, give us a quick overview on what brought you to where you are right now. Sure thing. Mate, so when we left left the
1: military, as as we all did, we kind of went out into our... uh, separate ways and different different business kind of ventures and for me um the last kind of couple of years in the military um I started studying an MBA um mainly because I kind of knew that I wanted to get into the kind of corporate world I thought that that was the that was going to be my kind of uh, my, my line um but after joining private bank and doing some commercial banking for ANZ NAB for a couple of years I realized pretty quickly that um kind of camaraderie and the, and I guess the high performance culture in inverted commas that I thought would be the case, um, coming out of the military definitely wasn't the case. So, um, I kind of always wanted to do my own thing. That was kind of the aim. So I got out, I, I started a, uh, actually purchased a facilities management and commercial cleaning business in Sydney's east suburbs. And then that gave me the opportunity to start my own kind of financial broking business. Um, did that for about 10 years and, um, and you yeah, know, did a few bits, bibs and bobs uh, every now and then as well on the side. But then that kind of culminated about 80 months, two years ago. My wife and I decided that we wanted to, we'd been planning on trying to get over to the UK for quite a long time. Um, so I moved over there with her and kind of fell into this consulting gig um, on the back of a, a book that I wrote um, a few years back. I kind of wrote a book that I'd been wanting to do for, for a number of years and um, on the back of that book, I got a few keynote speak, uh, speaking gigs, and then um, which turned into consulting, which was um,
0: very fortuitous. So that book was really telling the story about uh, about decision making. What what really prompted yeah. that? Uh, what really prompted you to go down that path?
1: Well, it, it, the, the original plan for the book was I wanted to I wanted to compare the the way that the military works and the way that we're, our kind of mindset is versus the corporate world because I saw a lot of inconsistencies and in what I thought, what I assume would be the case in, in the corporate world. And a, a, a small example of that would be the kind of the ethos of, you know, in the corporate world, you have your role, you have your job, and you're kind of always looking back on the person who's going to come up and stab you in the back to try and take over that role. And it's, it's a very protectionist kind of view where um, kind of senior leaders will only show so much, will only give you so much information because there, I guess there's a fear there that you'll kind of come over and, and take their role. So you get a lot of kind of you know, bad habits, bad culture, um, as opposed to the military, as, as, as you know. Um, the culture is almost like a discipleship culture. This is what I talk about, um, you know, where you, know, you, you kind of incentivize to train someone into your role because that ultimately leads to you getting promoted, which is almost the exact opposite of the world, that uh, the corporate world. So I wrote the book. Um, it's an analogy of a flight that I, that I was on um, during the military. And, um, we almost ran into the side of a mountain and, uh, and that mountain, which is the analogy for, um, kind of bad business and bad culture is, um, it's just a a reflection on the things and the mindset and the way that the military operate and how,
0: um, how different that is to the, to the corporate world. So yeah,
1: Yeah. that's, that's an essence
0: it's pretty amazing achievement mate uh, you've managed to cram a fair bit into that short lifespan mate so all credit to you and and it's great to see everything going really well for you now thanks that's uh, that's, that's right so uh,
1: i think most of us um most of the people that i've that i've kind of met in the military um kind of have an ocd and h to them i mean you're you're no different um we always striving to do something better and and try and do something for ourselves and and kind of make the make make our lives better it's a uh, again it's kind of Deep within the DNA. I want
0: to. I want you to take us back into that flight, and and I think you know using that as you said as the analogy that you've that you've spoken about with the flight, the team, and in particular the mountain. Um, Can you take us back to that moment or the the flight itself and talk to us what was going on that day? You know, was it a routine day? How did it start? How did it actually evolve? Um, and then what, what was the sort of immediate sort of follow-on actions that happened after it? So let's go back into that day. At the time, I was, I was on a P-3
1: C Orion crew. So I, I was in the Navy, obviously, but um, I got an exchange posting to the Air Force. So mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I was on the, on the crew. Uh, there were about 12 guys on the crew. Um, it's, a, it's a maritime surveillance aircraft. And uh, so the majority of the tasks and missions that we used to get would be to kind of fly over water for long periods of time and kind of search out um, whether it be, you know, uh, boat people during, the, um, during the, the boat people issue that the government was running, mm-hmm. um, all, all the way through to Full Scale War, where we we're looking for submarines, other, other surface vessels. So um, the mission, that, the training mission we we're on um, was off the southern coast of, of Adelaide, which is where we, where we kind of operated all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing a normal surveillance sortie. Um, we'd done the, we'd, we'd conducted the mission numerous times in this simulator. Everyone had a, you know, was full bottle on what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. So while we're down there, I, um, I was in the seat and I decided to jump off the seat. We were low level around about 300, 300 feet, which is the normal operating altitude doing about 350 knots. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, I got off the, I got off, off headset, went down the back to, uh, take a comfort break, grab some food, uh, which is again, which is normal. Um, came back to the seat, jumped on headset again, and um, you know asked the asked the crew for a, for an update, um, so I wouldn't be uh, left out of the loop for the for the mission. Mm-hmm. As as the as the crew were talking, I kind of looked out the looked out the side window, and as I looked down through the clouds, I so we were in the cloud at the time. I looked through the clouds, and there's kind of like a, a what, what appeared to be a splattering of rocks and like a rocky, rocky outcrop, which is quite normal down there on the southern coast. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of was a bit perplexed and said, look, um, Hey, uh, captain, um, I just saw some rocks out the side of the, uh, at the side of the, uh, the aircraft here. And I'm pretty sure we're not meant to be anywhere near rocks. So as is the case, the normal kind of procedures kicked in. The, the captain asked the radar operator, um, to clear track. And now that, that terminology means to, for the radar operator, to bring the radar up, um, ensure that all of the, um, all of the uh, air in front of the aircraft is clear of any kind of obstructions land other aircraft mm-hmm. um, but in this case we had a junior radar operator on there who was being uh, kind of assessed slash um, trained by a trainer on board mm-hmm. and he was a bit overwhelmed and, and basically nothing happened for 10 seconds and then after 10 seconds the the captain then again a little bit more firmly said a radar this is the captain request clear track um, again another massive delay and 10, another 10 seconds went by. And as you can imagine, you know, we've all seen those programs on TV, the the, uh, the programs where we, we hear the cockpit footage of an aircraft. And normally the, the five or 10 seconds prior to impact is normally dead silent, ironically. And um, yep. and so obviously my, my shackles were up on my back. I'm sure the rest of the crew was the same. And anyway, so uh, after a further 20 seconds um, had, had elapsed, the captain um, put foot uh, pushed the throttles to full, pulled the nose up to 45 degrees, quite, a, quite an aggressive maneuver, climbed to our safety altitude. Um, and then once we're up at our safety altitude, we then did an in, in kind of in-house, like in the aircraft in-crew uh, debrief, mm-hmm. um, uh, decided to get back into the mission, finish the mission, and then uh, return back to base. Now, when we returned back to base, um, all these people, all these kind of senior senior officers, came into the crew room, and uh, which is very unusual. And, uh, long story short, we had a we had an air traffic controller come in and, and basically trace the track of where we were that day. And in essence, we were um, 30 seconds away from um, kind of hurtling into the side of Kangaroo Island. Mm. And uh, and so uh, you know, as I as I preach in my book, and as I preach when I do my talks and workshops, it's um, you know, I asked the crowd normally what what do you think saved us that day? And, and normally I get a response of, Oh, the you know, the captain pulling up the aircraft and right? uh, I say, yeah, that's hundred percent correct. But the reason why he pulled that aircraft up happened, you know, minutes and hours and kind of days and months previous to that, which is the in essence what our training protocol and our training culture um is.
0: And that's uh, that's what saved us ultimately. Going back to that sort of moment when you gained that sort of immediate situational awareness that there was a, a threat in front of you, did you have any visual uh, aids at that point in time or were you still in cloud? What was the what was your yeah. circumstances there as well? Well, yeah, the, the irony was that
1: we, we didn't know where we were. Um, mm. We were still trying to clamour with getting that spatial awareness Mm. Um, as quick as we could. Mm. Now, in a, normal, in a normal case, the radar operator would have brought it up and we would have been fine and it would have been cleared or, or he would have noticed the, the, uh, the, the land mass and, and kind of made, um, made a reaction to that. So mm. the irony is we, we had lost situational awareness and no one could see anything. It was still in cloud. Yeah. So um, that's why that kind of immediate action, which is, the, I guess, the key, the key point of that immediate action drill yeah. um, was
0: carried out by the captain. And what does the immediate action drill uh, encompass? What is that? Uh, is there an acronym that you think of when you're using the, the IA or is there, is there a specific term that you use in your own mind when you're going through those emergency situations?
1: Well, um, I guess similar to, I guess, you know, um, talking kind of in in your, in your world and in the army world i mean mm. i know you, i know your um your business is is obviously uh built around a, a similar protocol and mm. obviously we've got the I think i think going back to my day it was tilt cock clock look which regard with regard to uh you know weapons weapons <laughs> yes. uh, you know. um so the the immediate action drill um by the captain which was you know throttle, pull up the aircraft and turn away from from land mm. um that that's not a, a immediate action drill per se, but okay. yep. um, what led what led to that would have been a would um, have been a set procedure, which would have been the, the dance, yeah, uh, protocol, which is which
0: I talk about. Yeah, what is what is uh, and what does dance protocol stand for?
1: Well, it was a, a dance protocol um, was built upon a smaller protocol. So in the, in, in aviation world, yep. um, kind of the key the key thing that's drummed into us from a from a junior aviator is the term um, aviate, navigate, communicate. So it's A and C. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've, I've I've taken that and expanded that to dance, um, because I believe there's two, two areas there. So, um, aviate, navigate, communicate. Mm. Um, so if we go from the start, aviate means to basically keep the aircraft safe and in the air. So irrespective of what's happening, um, you know, whether it be a a fire, whether it be a a loss of awareness, whatever it is, it's pointless. It's pointless delving us delving into minor detail when when we've basically got a, a problem at hand that could cause us to fall out of the sky. So aviate mm-hmm. is the first mm-hmm. one. Nav- Navigate is just ensuring that we um, um keep keep on track, keep away from future danger, and communicate is obviously communicating and debriefing. Now I've I've expanded that now to dance, which is um I've put a D on the front, which is decision. Mm-hmm. So normally in every single instance. Um, there's a trigger point, which, uh, which causes us to make a decision. Now in our, uh, in our flight that day, that yep. decision was, that decision was made for us because we, we had, um, no, no, uh, situational awareness, um, hmm. for, for, for a good 30 seconds. So that decision would have been, we've lost spatial awareness. Yeah. The aviate was to pull the aircraft up and away from any landmass. Um, mm-hmm. the navigate was to get back on track and to, um, Um, maneuver away from any future danger Uh, yeah communicate was to um, debrief in the air but also debrief um, uh, back in the crew room and evaluate evaluate is the important part which is to go back and make an assessment of what happened and 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 I guess spread the gospel for for better words um, throughout the whole community of of aviation all over the globe and this is this is important part and I think this is what I this is what I talk to a lot of corporates, a lot of guys in manufacturing specifically about, which is, you know, the best way for a for a company to earn goodwill um, is to become the uh, the lead um, promoter of safety and crisis management in their industry, and. Yeah. As an example, in in the aviation world, we have a we have a, uh, a report called an ASOR, which is an uh, an aviation safety occurrence report.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, which, if we have a major issue in the air, which is what we did that day, we yeah. write a, s- a set format, and that gets distributed to every single crew and uh, and squadron potentially all over the globe. Mm. And what that means is is that you know, next week when my when my best mates who are out there on the crew doing their mission, they don't have to go through or, or, or suffer the, the same issues that we just almost suffered and, and
0: almost killed ourselves. Mm. And it just bring, brings awareness to, to, to everyone in the game. So 12 people on that flight that day, uh, 12 people walked away safely in that regard. So it's a real credit to you and the team in, in firstly what you did. Going back into that debrief um, when, you, when you pulled up and you made it into some safe space, um, what sort of words, what sort of choice words were spoken at that point in time?
1: Yeah, look, that was, uh, uh that was more of a debrief, sorry, more of a, like a situation report of, um, yep. from the captain. Yep. Obviously the captain normally runs those and he, I uh, basically, uh, you know, like any leader, like in, like any leader in any organization that's gone through a bit of stress and a bit of, um, um, potential, uh, potential kind of loss. Mm. He, he just needed to settle the apple cart and kind of say, look, guys, um, what happened there kind of get get a, an idea of what happened how do we lose situation awareness mm. um, ensuring that everyone was all okay yep. um, was did anyone want to speak up because that, you know obviously there would have been some people that were potentially rattled by that yep. Um, yep. and and the kind of the, the, the key the key thing was to ensure that um, everyone was okay to get back into the mission or to to head back to base if, if someone was rattled because again one of the one of the kind of key, um, things that I speak about, which I learned from my time in the military was um, the art of the art of what they call followership and also um, cockpit gradients and the cockpit gradients in essence basically means that, and I guess it's similar in, in, in your world in the army is that, you know, sometimes someone the leader um, in this case, the, the aircraft captain or whether it be the infantry commander, whatever it might be, mm. although he's the leader and he's been put in there to make the decisions. Um, Often, oftentimes, there's guys on the crew or in the or in the in the unit that are far more experienced mm. um, at the at the task, um, yeah. but they're not necessarily the allocated leader. So it gives everyone an opportunity on the crew to speak up and say, "Look, you know, um, I I don't think we should proceed, or I think we should do X, Y, and Z because of the following reasons, based on experience." Mm. Ultimately, the, the captain has the final say, but um, it'd be a silly leader to to kind of turn away years and years of experience from the people in his team.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the, real, the, the benefit you do have from working in small teams in, in a military environment is that very opposite to what people think from the outside, there's, there's not a lot of uh, direction that's going on or controlling that's going on as a leader in those sort of environments. It's actually about capturing all the different experiences, all the different inputs to improve your operational plan um, and help then you know get their engagement for execution. Yep. Yes, ultimately, ultimately there is a leader that's making a call. Um, but without the without the leadership shown at all levels, then those calls can be pretty ordinary. Yeah, you debriefed in the air. How different was that? And I suppose when you get back on the ground, you've you've made it through that particular situation. Um, how difficult is it then to to you know open up the doors really to to a series of scrutiny? really, or an outsider that's coming in to, to really review what happened with your team in that situation? How difficult was that? And how did you manage that or balance that in that circumstance? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, uh, I
1: think I'm, I'm very, I guess people in aviation are quite lucky because for the last 30 years, um, it, it's been a, there's been a, a subtle shift almost you know, every day, every month within the aviation world. Back in the bad old days, Um, you know, senior captains, whether it be civilian aircraft or military, Mm. senior captains were viewed as God. Um, Mm. they were never questioned. Um, a junior co-pilot, his job was there to to sit down, be quiet and not press any buttons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and as I, as I talk about, you know, in organizations that that's so ludicrous, that'd be like, uh, like a junior co-pilot looking out his right window and seeing his wing on fire. Yeah, and he t- he turns around and tries to tell his captain his wings on fire, and the captain says, "You know, shut up, my wing's fine." You know, at the, at the end of the day, yeah. um, they're both going to die, so that's a, that's a, that's a silly way. So <laughs> that's a great um, analogy.
0: Yeah, a great analogy.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I guess the the culture um, within aviation is very um, very proactive in in kind of putting your hand up and saying what you did wrong, yep. and and going through that a process. So, um, for example, you know it was it was encouraged um it was kind of you know not only encouraged you were kind of given a pat on the back almost Mm. if you put your hand up and explain to your crew um what you did wrong during that flight and how you could have done better because of potential loss because from the uh, from the kind of civilian perspective um and you know, it seems, in like a corporate team, it'd mm. almost be kind of commercial suicide to put your hand up and say, "Oh, look, you know, guys, guess what I did wrong today." You know, that would be that would be viewed as almost like a, a you know, a, yeah, suicide as far as your career is concerned. But if you if you look at it from the bigger picture, in the aviation world, the reason why we're doing that is because um, it get, it serves as a learning process for every single uh, person on your crew, in your squadron, on your on, you know, in your wing, mm. um, to not go through and not potentially lose. Some uh, some great mates, and um, in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of silly in a silly incident or a silly error. So that that's our motivation, and now I'm, and fortunate that's turned now into a into a, into a culture. So uh, to answer your question, when we came back and did the debrief, um, it was more of a it was more of a case of getting in and finding out what went wrong and how that occurred and kind of you know, opening up the, opening up the, uh, the case and, and making it kind of a, a, a one for all and everyone having their say to try and find out the problem and then go ahead and work out a, a mitigant to work out how that's not going to happen again.
0: It's a really interesting case study in culture uh, and, uh, and how those things can be applied because you know, that those, every, every, every situation that's occurred, every major crisis that's occurred um, over recent history um, have occurred because of failures of culture in in many ways, which have led to a series of incidents that lead to an ultimate crisis. Um, and and often, I think that's a bit of a failure of um, of leadership to be vulnerable, uh, open themselves up to, to to these near misses, and and explore ways that you can learn. How did you use failure though in in that context because, or how did you guys view failure in that context? Because you know, the fear of failure is what often stops these things from being spoken out to start with. But how did you create that culture that meant that you didn't fear failure?
1: Yeah, it's um, it was, uh, I guess for me, um, I'm fortunate. Um, and I guess all the guys in my kind of fraternity are fortunate that we, we entered a culture that had already been kind of underway. For quite some time, so there was actually no fear um, of being kind of uh, transparent and uh, and open and honest about um, errors. And and I guess yeah, that's why I'm saying fortunate because I'm sure there would have been a transition period, maybe 15 years prior to me, where um, would have been very very uh, shaky um, coming from a culture of be quiet, um, don't say anything, protect your backside, through to where we are today. So. I feel for the people who got who have gone through that um but I I guess um like anything like any cultural change um it needs to be it needs to be kind of um exemplified and mirrored by uh, the hierarchy mm. and I think that was the case in in aviation globally where um no longer was it um considered uh, a cultural norm to have a crew in an aircraft that was um that had a kind of chinese wall in between the cockpit and and ultimately um, there's two things, in my experience, the change um, had made major uh, change uh, alterations, which are um, loss of life or massive loss of, of, of money. And mm. I think with the airlines, airlines being the kind of the, uh, the guys who started this process, mm. um, both of those were, were at risk. So They're the ones who, who put these, these cultural changes into place.
0: Now, I mean, in that transition for you, uh, moving out of the military Mm. Um, and looking into into business life, how did you how you find the the differences between the two initially? I mean, you've gone from a from an organisation which which embraced mm. failure to, uh, and to and and leaders that showed that vulnerability um, and actively sought those opportunities to identify errors to improve. Um, yeah. Was it that same sort of approach or mindset in civilian life? No, I mean, in my,
1: I'll, I'll just take the snapshot of the banking world. And this is why I think mean, there's two things with banking that kind of got me. The first mm. the first one was from a leadership perspective, I, because I, I, obviously I was a, a late starter. I, I left the military at 28 mm. um, and my first role in the bank was a, an assistant private banker. Now, mm. um, to, for those of the uninitiated, that basically means that my kind of cohort, or my colleagues who are, uh, who are doing a similar role. were are basically straight out of university. Yeah. So you've got young, young guys at a university, um, who, you know, are doing the basic stuff. Yeah. And because I was 28 and, 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 you know, gone through the Academy and gone through the military, it was obviously a little bit, a little bit different. So when I turned up, I, I worked out that my, my boss in inverted commas was my age. Yeah. Um, he'd been working in the bank since, you know, since he left the university and he had a, he, uh, he had the culture that the kind of the power trip culture and, um, you know, and, and I often say, you know, as, as, as they say in the military, I wouldn't follow him if he was dropping $50 bills and, um, <laughs> you know, and he kind of, he, he, he looked, he looked down upon me and kind of, uh, yeah, I didn't, didn't really enjoy that. But, uh, luckily for me, I had a kind of, uh, kind of more senior manager who kind of understood my background and where I came from. And he kind of um, brought me over to his, um, his area and kind of that's where, that's kind of where I blossomed and, and moves um, higher up in the bank. But um, so the culture, the culture is exactly kind of what I explained before, what motivated me to write the book now mm. from a, from a risk management perspective, mm. um, which is which is huge difference. I expected from a, from a bank to be very, very kind of tight and sharp on that kind of uh, on those issues. And, but as, as, as we can see from the, uh, from all of the banking scandals, the trading scandals that have occurred over the years, mm. um, it's and the not, banking a Royal Ten-
0: commission recently, yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Uh, it kind of it shocked me the amount of loopholes. And I think, you know, even from you know from uh, from our experience, uh, the age of seventeen, eighteen, the, the first day you join the academy, um, the the culture which I, I believe they put in your mind is is you know, what if, what if, what if, yeah, what if this happens? What if that person kind of falls over? What happens if, and that kind of what if culture, which is an inherent risk culture, a Mm. risk management culture, um, you know, I was asking those questions constantly within the bank and there were so many kind of massive loopholes that people could kind of get their nut, their neck caught in or they could take advantage of. And, um, and when I kind of was trying to be proactive on trying to, um, stop these risks from occurring, um, it was just, I found it was just a big ship and it was too hard to turn. And, um, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, at the time, um, it, it appeared to me that the CEO, the CEO of, 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 the bank at the time was more interested in working out his feng shui, feng shui culture for the bank than he was of, 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 of kind of, you know, fixing up these little uh, minor holes that could turn into massive issues. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was a, it was very, very, um, it was disheartening. That's probably the
0: best word. What um, transitioning from that then into into what you're doing now, which is really um, really working around how you best proactively manage risk, how you actively um, engage in decision making, and and using that sort of team methodology that you've learnt uh, from from your time in the navy. Um, how do you see businesses uh, and their uptake of those type of you know of your type of message? Sure. Well, the the good news is, is that the majority of the businesses I
1: work with are kind of SME. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when I'm speaking to them, I'm normally speaking to the MD, the board and the senior managers, which is great. That's, that's, a, that's a great place to start. Yeah. Um, and because they're not, they're not behemoth uh, organizations, they do have the ability to move and to change culture quickly. So mm. um, in my experience, um, the, the, the vast majority of businesses and, and companies that I speak with um, they do understand risk management or crisis management. They do have a the, kind of the obligatory risk register and the, mm-hmm. and I guess the compliant, the compliance is there. And, and and in most cases that's more out of kind of fear of litigation rather than it is out of the cultural change. Yeah. Um, so what I try to, what I try to outline to them is that kind of, you know, I try and change their view on risk management and also kind of crisis management. And, and the way I do that is explaining to them that kind of a risk management protocol or risk management culture, um, Mm -hmm. in its essence, which is, which is what i try to explain in the military. I mean, it causes, it causes a team to, um, look at their leaders and know that the leaders are not only kind of ticking boxes, but actually looking after their, their welfare, looking after their safety, looking after the company safety, which ultimately brings a level of trust into the picture and the, the team learns to trust. And as I always preach, you know, trust always comes before engagement. There's a lot of kind of spruking out there about, you know, team engagement that needs to be engagement. But as I talk about, you know, you can't have um, engagement unless you've got trust. You know, we don't, we don't sit down with our, with our, you know, before, before we get married, we don't sit down with our now wife and say, look, um, on our first date, uh, here's my here's my mission. Here's my vision. Here's what I aim to do over the next three years. Um, here's a ring. Please sign the dotted line. We don't do that. You know? <laughs> that, that's, that sounds ridiculous. Yeah, um, yeah, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a level of kind of you know time and I'm um, showing that we we care for each other and lots of conversation. Then we pop the question. So, um, so after we have trust and engagement, um, we, we as a business we have less less staff turnover, less churn, which ultimately leads us to increased profitability because we don't have all of those kind of um, uh, external costs and, and cost caused from, from staff turnover. So mm-hmm. if you look at it from that perspective, um, sure risk management, crisis management saves you when, when it needs to. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, more to the point, it has a direct correlation with, with the bottom line. So um you know, I think there's a famous quote on crisis management it says that, that crisis management is the art of avoiding trouble when you can and reacting appropriately when you can't. So <laughs> if you have those, those things in place, um, you know, the, the, the culture of, of trust will, will also build in, inside
0: the uh, organization. That's, that's basically where I come from. How many, how many of the organizations that you've, you've worked with or otherwise, um, how many of them have sort of said, well, look, it's pretty inevitable that something's going to happen, and um, it's pretty inevitable that, that someone's going to die. Um, but why would we need to put something else in place to prevent against that that that, that instance? So um, they're essentially accepting that uh, that something's going to go wrong, and accepting that, okay, well, I'm just going to look after it when it happens. How, how many of the organisations have dealt with had that, that sort of mindset? Well, I've been lucky like uh, very few, I think most of the, as I said before,
1: I think the, the level of compliance and I know the UK where I'm now is, is very similar to Australia in this. Is, the level of compliance and whether we work cover or otherwise, mm. um, you know, if we look at it from a, from that part of the crisis management, but also I, I'm speaking to a lot of businesses that are looking at crisis management, risk management from the um, PR um, yeah. finance side of it as well. So, um, you know, it, it's ironic that, that, most times the finance and the PR stuff um, will come up, you know, far more often than say a, a loss of life, especially, yeah. you know, the loss of life is really only applicable to the industries that I speak to when it, with, with regards to kind of manufacturing or yeah. um, that side of the house. So um, I've been lucky that that's, that is not the norm anymore, um, which is great. And I think the, you know, the major kind of change that I've seen is that there's been more of a, um, um, which is you know kind of your space, which is kind of, you know, perfect for you guys mm. um, the, the space of doing um, practice emergencies and going through yeah. um, practices of or simulations as I, you know, staying, I, I, I remain on the kind of aviation parlance. I yeah, say yeah, that, yeah. that
0: simulations is the way we use it too.
1: Yeah. That's the way we Right. Yeah. So, it. so that's, that's, that's the, that's been the kind of the, the thing that I like to inject in there is kind of having a, um, having a, a, a training regime yep. that, that, encom- that encompasses um, kind of trigger, and immediate action drills, um, mm. but that also has a has a simulation kind of um, process as well.
0: Um, with that in mind, then what's the sort of you know top two things that you're seeing across those that are that are really performing well? Well, by
1: far, um, you know, having that kind of training culture. So if mm. you if if you look at it from our perspective, from a military perspective, um, what people don't realise is that when when we go flying. Um, I'm not up there. We're not up there, kind of having a great time looking at the clouds and uh, you know, <laughs> you know, enjoying ourselves. 99% of the time when we take off in an aircraft, uh, we get our heads in the cockpit and we're conducting some sort of training mission. So we're um, we're always training, training to to make ourselves better. Mm. And incorporated in that is the is kind of the simulator uh, process. And the simulator process is not simply there to. Um, go through the motions of, of, of doing the mission. It's actually they're designed to um, push us beyond what we thought was our capacity and mm. work out what our, what our breaking point is. So if yep. we know what our breaking point is um, yep. in a the simulation, then we know we can, we can perform out there in the real world. So yep. um, the good, the good companies um, are conducting simulations, um, or, or training simulations all the time. And, and that can be as simple as, you know, what, what I, what I trying to suggest to a lot of companies is when they're recruiting, hmm. um, a lot of the times they're bringing in someone from another organization um, and you, and they bring all that, that baggage with them. They bring all of those bad habits with them. Um, and there's no uh, kind of set, um, handover process of training that person in in the culture of the business. And you know, as we can attest to, when we rock, when we turn up at the defense Academy at 17 years old, 18 years old, we're all, we're all kids with bad habits. Mm. So the, the silly things in commas, that averted commons that that our instructors make us do is ultimately to, to break us down and rebuild us into, into new military people. So mm. there's no different in the corporate, in the, in the organizational context. So it's the good, the good businesses are having a training regime that um, changes bad habits into the habits that they want um, displayed. Um, so, the, so that's the that's the kind of the key, um, the key essence of what what I try to um, do. Sending sending kind of you know fake fake buyers through the sales process is another example. You know, you get a get someone to actually go and have a meeting with your sales staff, yeah. um, and trying to see if they're espousing the the true culture of the organization all yeah. the way through to the the, the, the back end office back office stuff. Is, is it all getting done? Um, as advertised.
0: Yeah, the, I think Nadi Komnenitsky you say, you know, perfect practice makes perfect. Uh, do you see that organisations want to try and and play some soft simulations, or are they open to really pushing to failure?
1: It's it's, t- it's well, it's tough um, getting kind of any simulation done or any kind of training done because there's always that balance of, you know, most most boards and CEOs are accountable for one thing in most industries which is bottom line and um, sometimes it can be perceived as um, stripping time and resources away from um, from what needs to be done to to increase that bottom line and this is this is my greater challenge and I'm, no doubt that's your greatest challenge is that it is explaining the, the correlation between um, a good streamlined organization that's that's kind of savvy with risk management crisis management and as I said before, linking that with the bottom line. And That's, that's, mm. that's been my kind of mantra is, is not seeing risk management, crisis management as purely ticking your box and saving lives or saving things when things happen.
0: Mm. It's
1: actually, it's deeper than that. It goes back to what we're saying before with in the aviation world. It's taken 30 years to come to that, uh, that culture. Mm. Um, so the only way I'm going to be able to um, show a company that, that there is a, um, a link, is to try and change that culture away from just ticking a box. There's
0: no, there's no doubt there's uh, health and safety leaders, there's financial controllers, there's uh, security guys, there's crisis people within organizations that will probably be hearing what you're saying there and saying, yeah, that's the one big struggle I've got. I mean, how can you demonstrate for, or how do you go about demonstrating a, a return on investment for engaging with executive teams? Yeah, good question. It's, um, for me, it's,
1: it depends on how long I've got. Um, obviously, um, most times when I'm kind of consulting, I'm going in there for a, like a one day workshop. Yep. And, um, and if I'm lucky enough, I, uh, I try and kind of come back and, 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 and get an update on where things are at and, and kind of explain it. But ultimately what I'm there to do is, um, is to show, uh, an example um, both from from the military context or military aviation, but also my business and i I often when i 'm doing the consulting i 'll give tangible examples of um, say my business and how i 've implemented what i 've done, mm-hmm. and especially the dance the dance protocol because um, you know the, there 's a lot of businesses out there that um, what I call have a, have a kind of a, a static kind of a, a preventative kind of yep. static protocol going that 's all great but yep. the dance the dance protocol. Um, which I kind of try to um, put into their culture is more of a proactive, dynamic um, mm-hmm. risk management culture. So, um, if I show them, and you know, nine times out of ten, we normally go through. I ask the, the senior leaders what is their what is their largest risk, or what is their biggest risk that could kind of be a game changer for, the, for their organization. Mm-hmm. Um, they normally come up with it. Once we go through the, the dance protocol, and I show them how this can be structured. I then I then encourage them to go out there and, and kind of spread the word through all the, all the organization. And, and what I say to them is, look, if I can walk into your, if I can walk into your factory and I can go up to the person with the, with the broom mm. and, and ask them what the procedure is and, and what, what needs to be done if, if X, Y, Z happens and he can answer me or he, or she can answer me, then that's, that's a win. That's a, mm. that's a great win. And, and although you can't see the ROI on a daily basis, Mm. Um, you'll be able to see the ROI on a, on a timeline maybe you know, six months, 12 months, 24 months down the track with regards to the cultural change and, the, and then building that trust as I said before.
0: What's the one common error that you're seeing across the, the, the clients that you're operating with in risk management and, and generally in just, just in risk management to start with? Sure. Um, I think
1: the main error I'm seeing is that um, all organisations, they've, they've got a plan yeah, um, they're document they're documenting the plan. Yeah, um, but they're but they're simply not simulating or practicing the examples to failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as 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 you know, um, no doubt, and as definitely as I know, uh, given that in, that incident, um, you know, you only really understand how you think and how you react and how you act when put under that pressure. And mm-hmm. I had a, I had a conversation with the guy the other day, and he was talking about. Um, you know, he was, he was pitching for a new business, and um, I said, "Look, you know, what, explain the process." And he goes, "Look, I'm a bit fearful of, of you know, what what they might ask." And I said, "Well, give me an example of the of the worst question that you could possibly be confronted with." And he said, well, "Look, you know, it's it's got to do with uh, with with this this particular subject." And I said, "Look, if you you know go through that process in your mind." And actually um, ask that question in your mind, you, you'll, you'll find that you react to it, whether it be sweating or you mumble or whatever it might be. It's the old Pavlov's dog kind of theory. Yep. And I said, if you go through that enough in your mind and, and invoke that kind of reaction in your body and in your psychology um, time and time again, and then come up with a formalized kind of you know, immediate action drill pre-answer for that, then you'll find yourself that when you do get that question, you're not going to react. So they're not going to pick it up. You're not going to look like you're nervous. You're not going to look like you're under pressure, and you'll have a great response. So if you translate that example into risk management, mm. all I'm suggesting and what I'm saying, in order to not not that they're doing it wrong, but in order to um, do better, mm. uh, organisations need to put apply pressure on systems, on people, on um, teams. To failure, and say, you know what, failure is. Is here's the line of saying, That's where failure occurred this time. Um, and you know, obviously, not being not being uh, kind of uh, overbearing or aggressive about it. Saying, great, that's fantastic. Um, let's let's uh, revisit this in a in a, you know, a week, two weeks, one month time, and see where the new benchmark is after it's conducted more training. And that's that's where I think that they they need to prioritize that more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um... Yeah, mate. Seeing that, seeing that quite often, um, you know, the, the the reluctance to really push themselves to that to that sort of limit for yeah, again, for fear of you know breaking or making someone look bad, you know, and exactly, it, yeah, is is often then the worst case for them because that means that they're not really well prepared themselves. If it was your last engagement, what's the lasting piece of advice you'd give to to your client? I think
1: again, preaching on the same kind of uh, same line, which is, which is obviously what's so important. Um, you know, um, simulating a plan and ensuring that your team, um, the capacity is reached and, and it's documented and you understand that capacity because you know, incrementally increasing that, that capacity of a team is ultimately where we want to be. I mean, we go to the gym, um, you know, to give an analogy, we go to the gym, we, 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 we put on kind of 10 kilos, we build it up over time. And we build strength and we build agility and we build kind of cardio. Um, it's no different in an organization. Most organizations, to stay on that analogy, are doing, you know, they're going to the gym once a month for 10 hours um, and, they're, and they're wondering why they're, why they're getting sore and they're wondering why their muscles are breaking and their ligaments are hurting. So um, yeah. that sounds ludicrous, but we, we, we're doing that. We're kind of doing the, the once a year or twice a year, tick the box yeah. safety culture, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, incremental change and incremental kind of capacity building is, the, is, is what I'd ultimately um,
0: leave with them. What, what do you think they are doing the big hits once a year sort of routine? Is that purely for compliance or is it just because well, of the time factor? Well, I think it's time,
1: I think it's compliance, but if, if I'm gonna be cynical, um, sometimes it can be the case where um, a new manager, a new leader comes on board, and like most organizations needs to be seen to be doing something um, that, that's proactive. And, and obviously, you know, health and safety and cultural change in regards to risk management is always viewed as good. So sometimes it's a, it can be a last minute thing and um, you know, uh, an activity that occurs just to kind of um, be seen to be promoting it. Now, obviously we're all humans. We're not silly. We, we Most people can smell that a mile away. Mm. Um, and that's why, I said, as I said previously, the key here is to um, have that front of mind or at least one of the, one of the factors that's front of mind in the organisation so that the, organo- the organisation and the people in the organisation can say, look, this is actually legit. These people actually do care for my, my wellbeing. And that's where the trust builds.
0: Yeah, on trust, mate, what do you think has been the key, the key inputs that you've seen in, in the successful organisation? So uh, what, what's been the key factors that's yeah. made them uh, that's made them stand out from a trust point of view?
1: Well, um, I think, and this is why I kind of delineate um, you know, the, the, the training protocol. What I try to what I try to preach into the into training protocol is having kind of the um, the discipleship model rather than the teaching model. And the difference is um, that the, we've got a model in the in the aviation world, and it's kind of like I, I, I call it the jump seat model, where um, the first the first time a, a junior aviator um, turns up to, to start flying. He may have come from a farm in the middle of Australia and may not have ever seen an aircraft in his life, but he just wants to be an aviator. So the first kind of couple of flights, um, he sits in the jump seat, which, which, is a, which is a seat behind the two main seats in the cockpit. Yeah, and okay. all, yeah. all he's there to do is simply to um, have a heartbeat and breathe oxygen and, and, and that's it. Just to take it all in in, in kind of see what it, see how the crew dynamic works Mm-hmm. Um, hear the sounds, you know, see the things. Um, eventually he'll then move into the right-hand seat, co-pilot seat. Um, the first first part of that, he'll do nothing other than be be told what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, he eventually um, becomes more proficient and in the seat to the point where he's now you know fully qualified co-pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that discipleship model, um, rather than kind of you know what I've seen in most organizations, which is um, here's the job description. Um, we know you've kind of done it before in other organizations. So just, just kick on and get it, get it done. Um, and, you know, And people, uh, that's where bad habits form. That's where bad cultures form. That's where kind of incorrect procedures are formed. So um, having that cyber model, and that's what I try and get organizations to do is come up with a protocol. So that builds trust because you're training someone um, you know, day in, day out to do the role. Yeah. Um one of the main pillars that I that I teach is the is the five C's of trust, which are, which is um having consistency in, in the in the role, having consistency in what you do. The yep. second one is having competency, which is built through training. Um, the third is congruency, which is defined as um performing your job to a competent standard um through stress and um uh, and, and other environments. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth C is compassion, which is um, knowing so your team knowing that that you have your their best interest at heart, and then the final one which is courage courage is actually there because once you've got those other four c's in place um, your, your team actually turns around and wants you as the leader to to take bigger leaps and to to take bigger steps forward that you kind of it's in it's kind of internally generated which is a great thing that's the ultimate um, the ultimate in trust is having your team be your advocate and be your kind of cheerleader to to go on and do bigger and better
0: things. The five Cs, yeah, a a really interesting model and how it can apply. And again, the jump seat model, I think is a brilliant one for, particularly for that induction process, mate. So um, has that really been, you can see that junior leadership is a real challenge in a lot of businesses and and their ability then to retain staff um, as a result has been really challenged by that. How have you seen those types of methodologies discussed there, the five C's and then also the yep. top seat methodology? How have you seen those really work successfully? Well, the um, the, the, the five C's
1: um, is kind of like the backbone of what I, of my, of my one day workshop. So um, each one of those C's has kind of three or four um, arms that come off that in, in, in ways to, to to promote that particular factor. So mm-hmm. if I look at the jump seat model, the, the, the biggest thing about the jump seat model, which I found, is that um, number one, um, most corporate environments don't un, don't understand that that's the kind of the military ethos, and um, you know that kind of the the, the discipleship model um, mm-hmm. is kind of the is. The core essence of what I believe the difference between military and, and civilian world, and you know, most people out there, most of the listeners out there would have heard, would have heard kind of the corporate, sorry, the uh, the military ethos of you know, like I die for my brother, I would do this, you know, I, I would I'd I'd do this for the team, and and mm. and most people, and I think Simon Sinek has a great um, great TED talk about this, about you know, um, talking about how uh, during one of the I think one of the Afghanistan uh, campaigns. Um, there was kind of footage of a, of a soldier that had his, um, you know, leg blown off, put in the back of a helicopter. And on the, on the footage you see the captain or the major lean over and kiss, um, kiss the soldier on the forehead and say, and everything's going to be okay. And he, any, and questions that by how, how could you possibly have that much um, engagement, trust and love for a workmate in inverted mm. And I think that, that culture of dying for your brother and doing whatever it takes um, is built in a, from the day we, we step off the bus at the academy, which is you know the, those kind of ethos of um, you know you're only as slow as the, you're only as you know, fast as the slowest person and um, um, cooperate to graduate and all this kind of ethos mm. that's built in um, that that is the cybership and all I've done really is I've I've just taken a real life example of of the way we we train the cockpit and exemplified that as a way to a methodology for businesses to um, instill that. Uh, ethos into the into their business and so when i talk about that i normally get a lot of like you know, oh, wow great i you know yeah we we do have a we do have a kind of training protocol we do have a a methodology when someone new comes mm. but you know, we've never we've never thought about um you know x y and z and that's when i see those light bulbs go off i know that um that they've understood kind of what i'm my heart what i'm trying to get
0: across which has been great Brilliant, brilliant. If you could hear from one crisis leader or, or one person involved in a specific crisis, you know, who would it be that you'd like to hear from and, and why? Wow. Um,
1: well, I think the first one that comes to mind for me, yeah. um, and I don't know the name of the gentleman, but it was the, it was the, the about three or four years ago, there was a, um, I think it was a, a, a cruise liner that kind of ran aground off Italy, off the Italian coast. Costa Concordia. And, yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the guy and the captain, um, you know, did the, did the splits kind of, you know, I think he was drunk or something happened and he kind of took off and left the ship, um, yep. kind of hanging and doing it now, you know, the, old, the old age of the, the captain always goes down with the ship. Yeah. Uh, I just, I'd love to, and I don't know whether this is, um, this is been documented or on YouTube. I'll have to Google it, but I just I'd like to know, you know what, not only from a, from a captain's perspective and a and a you know I guess a you know a, a role perspective, but just from a human being, I just like to know what caused him to be um, under so much stress and so much um, you know I guess threat to whatever he's what he's thinking to make him undertake those actions. Because I think at the you know if you look at that that culture, there must have been such a strict culture of kind of threat to. To whatever it might be, his his character, his role, his life, from the organisation to cause him to do that—that's kind of you know so random and out of the blue for someone to do that in any in any kind of threat. Um, you know, it kind of go it kind of goes against one eighty degrees to everything we've spoken about so mm-hmm. far and everything that I try to teach. So I just want to—I'd like to sit down with him and work out what he was thinking. You know, that would be kind of the,
0: the 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 person I'd like to have a chat to. That is Francesco Scatino, who was the captain of the Costa Concordia, uh, yep. Costa Concordia, rather, yep. and uh, it appears he still may be in jail. So the only chance you're going to get to okay. do that mate is to over uh, yep. Italy and maybe go and see go and visit him whilst he's in jail. Yeah, it would be really interesting to hear why, you know, why he chose flight instead of fight.
1: From my perspective, uh, you know, when I often when I speak to to old classmates. Um, you know, it's a, it's interesting to always hear the perspective of, kind of what they've gone through, and that, and I guess you know, it's a similar transition to myself. That uh, it's almost like you, it's you're in shock with, like how how could you possibly be doing it this way, or how could you possibly be, um, mm. running this organisation like this? This is this is crazy. So, um, mm. mate, I wish you, all, I wish you all the best, Matt. It's, it's a great venture.
0: That concludes episode three of Crisis Talks. In next week's episode, I'll be speaking with Bill Bestick, a former New Zealand SASR officer who then became a kidnap and ransom negotiator and now finds himself as an anaesthetist. I'll be talking with Bill about failure, which sounds a bit ironic for a guy that's had as much success as he has throughout his life.